And welcome one and all to a special service, special in that it's different from the norm in a few ways. One is that this is not the normal time that we start our worship service. Our normal schedule is worship at 930, and then we have our age-graded classes at 11 o'clock, and that schedule is included in the program you should have received on the way in. That's on the top right-hand panel. Uh, on the inside. So you can take a look at that, and that's the way our schedule will be for next week as per normal. And I encourage you to read all of the announcements that are in the program, either read those today or this week. That includes a graduation open house on this Saturday from noon to three for Matthew and Michael Stevenson. So today's service is different because of the start time, and we're having only one service instead of two. But that's all because we're devoting this service to the theme of ordination, as we officially recognize two of our men for pastoral ministry. So I'd like to take some time to briefly explain what ordination is and how it is that we got to this day with these two men. Ordination goes back 2,000 years to the time of the New Testament. It's a way of publicly recognizing that God has called a man to serve in the office of pastor. That public recognition involves something that we're going to do later in our service. The leaders of the church lay hands on the candidate as a way of commissioning him for ministry. The Bible says this to one such pastor named Timothy. Pastor Timothy, your gift was given you when the body of elders laid their hands on you. But before that happens, the church is to take care to ensure that the man meets the qualifications given in Scripture. The Bible warns, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. And it also tells us that a pastor must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited. So the church must take time to examine a man's life to determine whether he meets the qualifications that the Bible sets forth. God's word says this about those qualifications. A pastor must be above reproach, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since a pastor manages God's household, he must not be overbearing, not quick tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable. One who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. The character of the two men being ordained today, Rich Carrico and Larry Castle, has been observed by our church for the entire 15 years of its existence, as each of them have been with us since Community Bible Church was launched in September of 2001. We've seen their lives in the context of ministry and family life, observing how they interact with God's people, with their wives, and with their children. We've seen and we benefited from their faithful and excellent service over these many years. And we've witnessed the character and ministry of their wives, Tracy and Julie, and found each of them to meet the standards of godly women given in the Bible. And so because our church has grown and is in need of additional pastoral leadership, 
I approached Rich and Larry last year to ask whether they would be interested in pursuing ordination. And the process that's brought us to this day has taken almost exactly one year. Fifty-one weeks ago, I recommended to our leadership team, the deacons of our church, that we consider ordination for these two men. And with their unanimous approval, I informed the congregation at a family meeting in May of last year that we would be looking to add two men to our pastoral staff in the next year. We sent questionnaires to people outside the church with whom Rich and Tracy and Larry and Julie work, and those people have given their highest recommendation for all. Rich and Larry and I met for several months to review and discuss essential areas of doctrine and ministry practice. On March 11th of this year, our leadership team met with Rich and Larry for four hours to question them on those areas of biblical teaching and practical application, after which the team unanimously voted to recommend to the congregation that we proceed with ordination. Two weeks later, on March 26th, the congregation approved the leadership team's recommendation. So we come to this sacred day because of God's providence in the lives of these men and their families and through deliberate and careful preparation on the part of the church in accordance with the principles of God's word. Therefore, we're grateful to the Lord for what he's done to make this possible. And we're very grateful to each of you for taking time to be part of it. Now, the service itself will have some typical elements to it with a couple of differences. There are going to be two sermons. Now, don't let that scare you. Each sermon is going to be half the length of a normal single sermon. Dr. Combs will deliver what's called a challenge to the candidates, directing his remarks mostly to Rich and Larry and what the Bible says to men who serve as pastors. I'll give a challenge to the church, encouraging each of us to learn from the life example of the families who are at the center of today's service. So there will be two shorter messages today, and as I mentioned, at the end we'll have the laying on of hands as Larry and Rich and our leadership team will come forward, and a prayer of dedication will be offered over these two men. With that, I'll ask our ushers to come forward, and we are going to have worship through giving at the beginning of the service. We normally don't do this at the beginning, but we're going to do that, and then we're going to get into the worship of the Lord. This is part of our worship as we give back to the Lord as he has first given to us. Now, for those of you who are guests here today, do not feel obligated to give. Just pass the basket to the person next to you as it goes by. This is something that those who are members of our church do each week as an act of worship. May the Lord bless you then as you give.
All right, well, we begin now by standing and singing The Church is One Foundation. Solid rock I stand, all other ground is 
The first reading of scripture is from the Apostle Paul to the people of the Church of God in Corinth. And also to you all who are sitting here this morning, and especially to Rich Carrico and Larry Castle. So I'll now read 1 Corinthians 9, 24, and 25. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes for strict training. They do it to get a crown, and that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Our text this morning is Second uh, Timothy chapter 2. These men are in the aisles. They have some Bibles. If you don't have a Bible today, just uh, get their attention for a second and they'll give you a Bible. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, please keep that Bible as a gift from us. We're looking at Second Timothy chapter 2 this morning. Second Timothy chapter 2, and I'd like to read... As we begin here from verses 1 through 7. Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, thank you for bringing us to this time in the life of our church and the lives of these men we set apart today. 
As we look to your word for instruction and guidance, may we all have hearts that are willing to submit ourselves to you. We pray that what we do here today will bring you glory as we rejoice together in your goodness to all of us, but especially to these good men. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. It's an honor for me to be a part of this ordination service for Rich and Larry. I have the privilege of giving the charge to the candidates this morning, charge to the candidates for ordination. I've known Larry for a number of years, uh, going, I think, all the way back to his high school days, but particularly when he was a student at the seminary where I taught for many years. I've known Rich going back, I think, all the way to his days at Huron Baptist, though admittedly I didn't know him all that well then. Most of what I knew about Rich until recent times came chiefly through the stories that Pastor Ken would tell me over the years. But I won't go into that today, Rich. (laughs) Seriously, I've come to greatly appreciate these men. The last two years that my wife and I have been here at Community Bible Church, I'm honored to count them as friends and co-laborers in the ministry, in the gospel ministry. I'm delighted that they're entering into this sacred office today, the office of pastor, elder, overseer. The New Testament uses these three terms interchangeably of the same office, but in our circles we prefer the term pastor. The Apostle Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books in our New Testament. And three of these letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, have come to be called the pastoral epistles because they were written to associates of Paul, men who labored with him, in the gospel ministry, and served in positions of leadership in local churches. At the time of the writing of 2 Timothy, Paul is in the city of, uh, Timothy is in the city of Ephesus, where Paul had uh, spent a number of years. Timothy is in a position of leadership in Ephesus. This second letter to Timothy is Paul's last letter, actually. The apostle is now in prison in Rome with the facing the prospect of speedy execution. As he says later in chapter 4, I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What Paul will say... Let's notice what Paul will say this morning. What would a man say? These are his last words to his young co-worker and leader there at Ephesus. Paul's concern, as we read especially in 2 Timothy, is that Timothy will be what Paul calls a good minister of Christ Jesus. He mentions in 1 Timothy 4.6. I want you, I want you, Timothy, to be a good minister of Christ Jesus, a good pastor. The Greek word good, kalos, means noble or worthy. And I know that's the heart's desire of Rich and Larry as they enter this sacred office, to be a good pastor for our Lord. And so I want to challenge Rich and Larry this morning with some words from the great apostle. 
But let me also note that Paul ends 2 Timothy with these words. He says at the very end, grace be with you all. So Paul expected this letter to Timothy to be read to the entire church at Ephesus. So all of us this morning can learn and be challenged by Paul's exhortation to Timothy. What does it take to be a good minister of Christ, a good pastor? Well, it takes a lot of things, a lot of things. And Paul covers some of those throughout the pastoral epistles. But in the passage before us this morning, Paul mentions three things that he considered essential, three requirements he considered essential for the pastor, for good, for Pastor Timothy to be a good minister of Jesus Christ, to one day hear our Lord Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. I'd like for us to look at those Three things this morning. Paul says a good minister of Christ, a good pastor, must first of all be strong in the grace of Christ. Verse 1, you then, my son, be strong in the grace of Christ that's in Christ Jesus. A good pastor must be strong in the grace of Christ. Grace is the reason we're saved. In Ephesians 2.8, Paul says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. That word by means because of. It's because of grace you have been saved by means of faith. God's grace is the sole efficient reason that we are saved. Grace is the opposite of merit or works. God saved us not because he saw something in us, that merited or deserved salvation. No. It was strictly the act of a God, of a God who set his love on us. But our need for grace does not end when we are first saved. It's by God's grace, by God's grace that we're enabled to walk in his will, that we're able to live a life of faithful obedience, to serve our wonderful Savior. Grace is a divine enablement. Grace is a power that transforms. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So Paul tells Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Rich, Larry, if you're going to be a a good minister of Christ, if you're going to persevere as a pastor, you're going to need a lot of grace. (laughs) It's by God's grace that you'll gain the spiritual strength to carry out your ministry. All believers need grace, but especially you, you men. God's people will look to you as examples, as leaders in this church. The weak, the discouraged, the fearful, the troubled, they'll turn to you for help, for guidance. And unfortunately, some will need to be rebuked. Some will need to be corrected. You're going to need grace. Because we're fallen, sinful creatures, we naturally have an unwarranted confidence in our own abilities. We tend to trust ourselves. I pray you men will have ministries marked by grace, that you will serve this church by relying on God's grace in Christ, 
that folks will be able to see that you men draw your strength through your relationship with Jesus Christ. That you will be men who depend upon God's word and prayer to grow in grace, to be strong in grace, to minister in grace. God's grace will be sufficient to enable you to do whatever our Lord would have you to do. Be strong in His grace. Paul has two more admonitions for Timothy in this passage, but they build upon verse 1. Timothy will need the grace of God if he's going to be a good minister of Christ Jesus. And he will be strong in grace if he's going to, he's going to need a lot of strength if he's going to heed these next two exhortations. So to Timothy, Paul says, be strong in the grace of Christ. And secondly, in verse two, entrust the apostolic truth to reliable people. He says in verse two, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So you must entrust the truth, the apostolic truth, to reliable people. This exhortation here in verse 2 builds upon Paul's previous comments in chapter 1, verse 13. There he says, what you have heard from me keep as a matter of sound teaching. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. The good deposit that was entrusted to Timothy was the gospel, the apostolic doctrine, a great treasure. But not only must Timothy guard what had been entrusted to him, Paul says now in verse 2 that Timothy, Timothy is to entrust that deposit to others. What Paul has deposited with Timothy, Timothy is to deposit with others. New Testament truth is not something invented by men, but something deposited with the apostles and passed down right to this day. This is what we're doing here in this ordination service. We're entrusting to you men, to you Larry, to you Rich, a great treasure, the gospel, the doctrine, the teachings of the Christian faith. These great truths from Scripture, Paul tells us, in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, are God-breathed. They are, my friends, the basic Christian doctrines that we hold dear. And they're not open to negotiation. (laughs) At least they shouldn't be. They're God-breathed. But I read almost every day, it's just common to read about some so-called Christian leader who has changed their mind about some basic truth that's been held for 2,000 years. But suddenly, no, we won't hold to that anymore. But you men must stand with Paul, with Timothy, for the truth of the gospel, whatever the cost may be. And it's liable to be costly in the days ahead. It's liable to be very costly. I'm not a prophet, but you don't have to be a prophet to see what's coming, to see And to realize that even in our own country, opposition to the gospel is growing almost every day. So I encourage you men to guard the gospel, guard the deposit that's being entrusted to you this day. 
But Rich and Larry, you must not only guard this deposit, you must pass it on to the next generation. The transmission of Christian truth should not be left to chance. You men are being charged with a solemn responsibility. In your ministries, find reliable people. Cultivate and nourish relationships with those who will be taught and can be taught. Those who can be trained and those who can be entrusted with these sacred truths of the Christian faith. One of the reasons that churches fail is right here. The future of this church, the future of Community Bible Church, depends on how faithful Paul's exhortation is carried out. So men, don't shrink from this task, this sacred task. God will give you the grace to do this. So not only must a pastor be strong in the grace of Christ, and not only must he be careful to entrust the apostolic truth to reliable people, But thirdly, if he's to be a good minister of Jesus Christ, he must, Paul says, endure the hardships of the ministry in verses 3 through 6. Now, this exhortation to endure hardship is directly stated right at the beginning of verse 3. He says, join with me in suffering. That's not exactly what you want to hear on the day of your ordination, (laughs) But a fair reading of this epistle suggests that the Apostle Paul believed it was the normal situation. It was the lot of the minister to suffer for the gospel, to endure hardship for the sake of the truth of the Christian faith. This belief is reflected in Paul's statements throughout this epistle. For instance, in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel. Same expression as here. Chapter 1, verse 11. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. In the very next section, in verse 8 of our chapter right here, Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering. Chapter 3, verse 10, he says, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra? The persecutions I endured. Finally, in chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says, But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship. This is tough stuff. These multiple calls to endure hardship, to endure suffering, they're very difficult for us to identify with, given the kind of place we live in, given the kind of religious liberty we've enjoyed here in America for so long. But as the gospel is becoming more and more countercultural with each passing day, a hostility grows to biblical truth and those who proclaim it. And so we may find these exhortations more relevant than we have normally thought they were. I think you men, Rich and Larry, are likely to see more persecution and suffering for the gospel than we've seen certainly in the last 100 years. 
But Paul doesn't leave this call to suffer entirely to our own imaginations. Having called for Pastor Timothy to join him in suffering for the gospel, Paul now immediately gives three examples to illustrate the kinds of hardship the minister of the gospel is called on to endure. The exhortation to endure this hardship is illustrated in verses 3, the latter part of verse 3, going through verse 6, with three examples. He gives the example of a soldier, the example of the athlete, and the example of the farmer. Let's look at each one of those. First of all, the example of the soldier. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus, Paul says. By the very nature of his occupation, the soldier will often be called upon to endure hardship. With America's recent campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan, the difficulties and hardships of being a soldier have become more real to many of us. As we've known people, we've heard stories of what's going on in those faraway places. Paul's point is that the Christian soldier should not expect any easier time. Ours is primarily a spiritual warfare, but it's still a battle. It's still a life and death struggle for the souls of people. There's real opposition to what we are doing. If we are reliable, faithful to the gospel, we'll have to endure some hardships, maybe a lot. And unfortunately, the tendency for most of us is to grumble, to complain. You know, if anything disturbs our comfort, we're upset. We can't take it. Men resist that tendency. Embrace, by God's grace, the difficult things he brings into your life and ministry. God has a purpose for these hardships, for these difficulties. The imagery of the soldier here in verse 3 leads Paul to extend the illustration in verse 4. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. We have to remember this illustration is primarily designed to support verse 3. The pastor has to take his share in suffering. So here in verse 4, Paul's emphasis is on the pastor's wholehearted devotion to his commanding officer, even to the point of great suffering. Rich and Larry, your primary allegiance is to Christ and his church. You're now on active duty. Single-minded devotion to our commanding officer requires that we suffer by giving up a lot of things we might like to devote our lives to, by giving up a lot of the comforts that we might like to enjoy, by giving up our time, our energies to other things. It's a form of suffering to deny oneself many of the joys that our culture provides in order to be devoted to Christ and his mission. Be devoted to Christ and his mission. I'm sure you men are already familiar with this exhortation. I'm sure you've read it, but it's easy to forget. We all forget. Naturally, we all want the easier, the more comfortable life. But men, God will give you grace to endure hardship for the gospel. Be strong in that grace. 
This exhortation to endure hardship is illustrated first by the soldier and now in verse 5 by the athlete. Paul says, similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The athlete has to suffer because he has to obey the rules. Now, the rules in this illustration are not the rules of the contest itself. Paul's not talking about cheating in the actual contest itself. Rather, he's referring to the rules of training leading up to the Olympic Games. In Paul's day, the rules required a 10-month period of very strict discipline. Failure to complete this training would result in disqualification and humiliation. So the idea here in verse 5 is equivalent to what was read earlier in 1 Corinthians 9.25, where Paul says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Each time the Olympic Games come to our TV screens, we're reminded of the amount of hard work and self-discipline it takes to make it to the games, let alone win a medal there. Paul sees the ministry as requiring the same kind of hard work and self-discipline. Larry, Rich, continue to discipline yourselves. Paul will say in verse 15 of this chapter, do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. I know you men know this. But we need to be reminded, stick to this stuff. Prepare and train and discipline yourself for this ministry as you already have. We want to hear our Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. The last exhortation to endure hardship is illustrated by the farmer in verse 6. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Paul's emphasis is on the word hardworking here. The hardworking farmer. The farmer is another person who has to normally endure hardship and suffering. Farming has historically been a profession that required hard work and long hours if one is to have a good crop. In this illustration, the farmer is willing to put in lots of hard work and therefore he can rightfully claim to receive a reward. So just as in the previous verse, Paul here is hinting at the future reward for the faithful pastor who will ultimately make his, that will make his suffering and hardship worthwhile. God will certainly reward the faithful pastor who endures hardship for the gospel. As I stated earlier, Paul's main point in these illustrations is to remind the pastor that he will be expected to endure hardship for the gospel. Some men aren't willing to endure any suffering, any inconvenience. Maybe that's why many people, many had forsaken the apostle Paul. He lists those throughout his epistles sometimes, and it's very heartbreaking. We think of Mark, who departed and left Paul on his first missionary journey. 
Later in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, Paul mentions his former co-worker, a man by the name of Demas. And he says, Demas, because he loved this present world, has deserted me. We live in a culture where the chief goal is our personal enjoyment and satisfaction. The opposite of what Paul is calling for in this passage. Let me close by reminding you men of verse 7 of our text. Paul says, reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Larry and Rich, reflect on what Paul is saying. Take it seriously. Take it to heart. I believe you will. I pray God will richly bless your ministry for the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray you will use these exhortations of the apostle to challenge Rich and Larry as they take up this sacred office. And I pray they will faithfully fulfill the ministry you are giving to them this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me now as we sing the second song set, starting with In Christ Alone.
God's word in Philippians 2 says, I hope to send Timothy to you soon. I have no one else like him who still shows genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I also think it is necessary to spend, send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier. Welcome, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts 18, Acts chapter 18. It's page 773 in the Bibles that the guys distributed earlier in the service, Acts chapter 18. A best-selling book several years ago was titled, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. The premise of the book is that men and women are so very different that it's like they are from different planets. Now, it's certainly true that there are major differences between the sexes that's seen in simple things like choosing a movie. The gals often want a chick flick that usually involves crying at the end. The guys want something where stuff gets blown up. 
The differences between men and women, and really just between people in general, is a very long list indeed. Because of the varieties of interests and preferences is endless. But although that's true, for Christians, what we have in common should be much more important to us than our divergent likes and dislikes. As God's people, in relationship with one another, whether in marriage or as fellow believers in his church, we're to be people who understand that God has brought us together for a common purpose. And that is to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to serve him together. We are people who, as part of our families and as part of our church family, are brought together for one agenda, Christ's agenda. And as an example of that kind of shared commitment to a common cause, I'd like to briefly consider a husband and wife who are profiled in the Bible. They're mentioned six times in the New Testament, and in those passages we find a description of a couple who was committed to serving Christ together. Verse 1 of Acts 18. Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed with and worked with them. Now, we can learn a number of things from the example of this couple, from the way that they serve together in the cause of Christ. The first is this. Their possessions were to them a means to serve Christ. We learn here that they opened their home to Paul. They had a common bond in that they were all tent makers. Now, we don't know the details of the arrangement that they had with Paul, but it's clear that they extended hospitality to him. They willingly opened their home so that he would have a place to stay while he labored for the Lord and he preached the gospel in the city of Corinth. They saw their possessions, their house and their family as means to serve Christ. So let's ask ourselves, how do we view our homes? As our castle? As a trophy for people to marvel at? Or do we see our homes and families as means, as tools to be used to serve Christ? Are we willing to use the resources and the blessings in our homes that God has given to us as a family to use those for his cause? Or do we want to protect it and keep it isolated? We don't want people coming around and messing up our stuff. Aquila and Priscilla allowed Paul to invade their home and their family for a period of, according to verse 11, 18 months. They worked with him and they served with him and they allowed him to live with them. Rich and Tracy and Larry and Julie understand this. Their homes have been used to further God's work. This church in its planning stages started in the Caracos living room. When throughout the summer of 2001, the core group that became CBC met there. Larry and Julie have opened their home to our young people for years, and it became a kind of second home for some. And both families over the years have hosted community groups, our weekly small group ministry that meets in homes. 
This couple's possessions were means to serve Christ. Secondly, their lives were always available to serve Christ. Verse 18 of Acts 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. And then he left the brothers and sisters and he sailed for Syria. Now notice, he was accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sincrea because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So after his extended stay of 18 months in Corinth, Paul set sail for Palestine, and he made his first stop at Ephesus. And who goes with him? None other than Priscilla and Aquila. They left their home to go along with Paul to serve the Lord with him. Here's a couple that had a common mindset, a common focus. As husband and wife, they were called to serve the cause of Christ together, and they were willing to follow Paul to do that. Their lives were always available to serve Christ. In order to serve him together, they were not locked in one vocation or even one location. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all sell our homes and head to the mission field. But we ought to have a perspective, a common focus that says we are going to be at the disposal of the Lord to serve him together wherever and however we can. In fact, notice this. Aquila and Priscilla went and served where they were needed. Not just for their benefit, but for the cause of Christ. You see, when Paul left Ephesus and he headed for yet another city, Antioch, he left them back in Ephesus, according to verses 20 through 23 of our chapter. Now, why? It was probably to begin to form a nucleus of believers from which they could form a church. In the fact, the Bible tells us about the church there in Ephesus. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. They were involved in planting a church in Ephesus, which was in Asia, and their home housed that church. Now, even though the Bible tells us they asked Paul to stay with them there, they stayed where they were needed and where they could serve Christ and be part of establishing a church and can be used of God in that local church. Think about what a difference that mindset is from so many Christian families today. Christian families shop around for churches. We do so like consumers, looking first for what the church can do for, for us rather than what we can do for the Lord and his people. When the Caracos and Castles joined the core group that became this church 15 years ago, both families left good churches where they were comfortable and they had many, many friends, and they left that for a venture that may or may not work out, and it had no programs for their children. And because of the sacrifice that they made, and that so many like them over the years have made this church is here today to serve Christ by serving this community and beyond. This model families, this model couples approach to ministry shows us that their possessions were means to serve Christ. Their lives were always available to serve Christ. Here's a third thing. Their passion was for God's truth in serving Christ. 
Verse 24 of chapter 18. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home, and now notice this, explain to him the way of God more adequately. Now, this Apollos was a brilliant man. He came to Ephesus and he was teaching the scriptures he had available to him. The first part of your Bible at that point, the Old Testament. He was knowledgeable of certain things concerning Christ. But what he knew was limited, apparently, to the teaching and ministry of John the Baptist. He had probably never been taught of the finished work of Jesus Christ and of the coming of the Holy Spirit and of Christian baptism. And so this godly couple, Aquila and Priscilla, after they heard him, they took him aside to their home and they taught him the truth of God concerning Christ. The Bible tells us that Apollos went back to Corinth to carry on a powerful gospel ministry. So you see in this that obviously both Priscilla and Aquila were grounded in the truth of God. They were grounded in the gospel, in the teaching of Christ and his saving work. And they were not only each knowledgeable, but they were committed to teaching others. As couples, as husbands and wives, as families, as individuals, we need to be growing together in our knowledge of God, in our grasp of the truth of the Word of God, in our grasp of doctrine, and then to use that in the lives of others. There are many, many people in this audience who have benefited directly from the teaching ministry of these two couples, both publicly and privately, in classes taught at our church and over coffee or a meal. They've learned God's word so that they can serve Christ by sharing his word with other people. So this model couple in Scripture shows us that their possessions were means to serve Christ. Their lives were always available to him. Their passion was for God's truth in serving the Lord. And finally this. They risked their very lives to serve Christ. The Bible says this about Priscilla and Aquila. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Now, in this, in this greeting, at the end of his letter to the church at Rome, Paul asked that the believers there greet Priscilla and Aquila, who had apparently gone to Rome after being in Ephesus. Paul praised and commended them as fellow workers for the cause of Christ, and he revealed that at some point they risked their own lives to save his as they served together. We're not told how they did that. But in some way, they put their own well-being in jeopardy to help Paul during his ministry for Christ. And by the way, notice this as well in that passage that's on the screen. Notice there's yet another church meeting in their house in yet another city. So friends, that should cause all of us to ask ourselves, what are we willing to risk to serve the cause of Christ? What are we willing to jeopardize, to lay on the line to move the cause of Christ forward, to serve Christ together as individuals and families. 
our time and our convenience, our finances, our future plans, our personal wants and desires, our reputation. And friends, this is not just something that people did in biblical times. But it's something that the faithful people of God have done for 2,000 years. And we have examples of it in the two families before us today. They've not been called to risk their lives. But they have sacrificed greatly for the cause of Christ. Not because they have to. But because they want to. For his sake and for the sake of his people. It would be literally impossible to calculate the hours and days and months and years that each of these families has put into the Lord's work and the Lord's people. And I might add voluntarily, without pay. They've worked all sorts of jobs or labored to establish businesses, all so that they would have time and resources to do what's most important, the Lord's work. So with all of that, friends, here's the challenge for us as a congregation, as God's church, as we read of the lives of Aquila and Priscilla, and we see with our own eyes couples like Rich and Tracy and Larry and and Julie. We need to understand that all of these couples are just regular Christians serving Christ with all that he has given them. And our church is blessed with many, many just like them. Thanks be to God. You see, pastors and their families are not different in kind from other Christians. Aquila and Priscilla were just regular folks serving the Lord. We're all called to use what God has given for his cause in whatever capacity he opens up for us. It doesn't matter what the title is or what the position is. We all have this in common. We're giving ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Now, I've used the Caracos and Castles as positive examples for us to follow. And that's in keeping with the precedent given in the Bible of naming people who are worthy of emulation, as Jim read for us just a bit ago from Philippians 2. But these families do not take credit for what God has done in their lives. The truth is, all that I've said about them is what the Lord has done in them and through him and through them. And he is the one who is to get the credit and to receive the praise. But he desires to produce that fruit in the lives of all of his people. He desires and he deserves to have a church, a people who have given themselves fully to him and to his work. Now, if you're doing that, as so many of you most definitely are, then the challenge is to continue to persevere and to exude the joy of the Lord in the journey because you're doing it not because you must, but because you see it as a privilege. And if you know that you're not serving Christ with all that he's given, then I encourage you to remember the privilege it is to serve the risen Lord and to use the example of these couples as something to aspire to. You may not be a pastor, We may not have a service like this to ordain you, but you're a minister. You're a servant of the Lord. Avail yourself of the many opportunities offered to you at our church to use your gifts and your talents for the one who gave them. Friends, may we commit to being families and individuals like Aquila and Priscilla and Rich and Tracy and Larry and Julie 
whose common focus and agenda is on serving Christ together. Now we're going to have our prayer of dedication. And I'll ask the ushers to come and set the platform for us to do that. Guys, if you'll come on up and if our leadership team will come as well. And one of our leadership team members, Mark Hunter, is out of the country in China. So he regrets that he was not being able, to, able to be with us. But we're going to have our prayer of dedication now. So Rich and Larry, if you guys will kneel, we'll lay hands on you. We'll have two prayers. Dr. Combs is going to pray, and then I will, I will pray as well, okay? Our gracious Father, we praise and thank you for this special day in the lives of Larry and Rich, the life of our church. We thank you for these two men and their families. We're grateful for the service they've already given for the gospel over the years. We know them to be godly men who desire to serve you and your church. We're thankful that you have led them to this important moment in their lives as they are being especially set apart for the gospel ministry. We ask your blessings upon them and their families in the days ahead as they take up this office of leadership and service in our church. We ask that your grace and your wisdom may be evident in their lives, that they may be men of the word and prayer. Give them grace to endure the hardships and sufferings that will come, but also grant them great joy as they fulfill their ministry. Protect them and their families from the evil one. Give them many years of fruitful service here at Community Bible Church. And help us, the members of CBC, to uphold these men in prayer and to encourage them in their ministries. May we follow the admonition of the writer of Hebrews, to have confidence in our leaders and to submit to their authority because they keep watch over us as those who must give an account. We pray in Jesus' name. Our Father, we thank you for the marvelous grace that is seen in bringing us to this day. That grace began before the creation of the world when you chose these men to be your very own. And you chose to call them out of the world into yourself, but then into your ministry, providentially preparing them in every way. You brought them under the sound of the gospel and you moved upon their hearts so that they embraced the message and the Savior who's central to it. You began to, by your spirit, work in them so that they desire to see your glory spread in your world using the gifts that you have given them for that very cause. Lord, you have taught them your word. You've given them opportunity to teach your people your word. And they've availed themselves of those opportunities. 
You've steeled their character. You've formed it to be like, to like Jesus. And you've allowed our church to witness that character as we've joyfully served together with them and their families. And now you've brought us to this sacred day. Lord, this is all you're doing as you set these men apart for the ministry. We thank you for preparing them. We thank you for preparing their wives, for preparing their families. And now, Lord, we ask you to help them as we move forward, that they will remain faithful, that you will protect them from the evil one who desires to sift them as wheat. But, Lord, help them to maintain that character by your grace. Help them to keep their focus upon you. May their families do the same. May they continue to joyfully serve you in the years ahead. As a result, may your church benefit from that. And may we as your church strengthen them and encourage them and submit to them as they follow Christ. Lord, we thank you for bringing us to this day. It's all because of you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, guys. Thank you, guys. All right, we are going to have and conclude uh, with a closing song. And after we have that closing song, I invite you all to come around and greet uh, the Caracos and the Castles. They are up at the front row here, and so they will remain there as you come as you come through. And as you greet them, you are greeting Pastor Rich and Pastor Larry. That's their title uh, at this point officially. But don't take long as you go through the line. Because, one, we have a lot of people, and because I'm going to lunch with these guys and I'm hungry. (laughs) If you have children back in our nursery or in our children's worship areas, after we're done with the song, we would encourage you to go and, and get them. So now let's stand for our closing song. Oh,
our service for today. We do invite you again to come by and greet uh, the castles and the caracos before you leave, and thank you for coming.